Are we getting closer to the one single right way things are supposed to be? Or is there no such thing as the right way? Will we examine the enormous scope of postmodernism and see where it's popping up in our cultural milieu today? Welcome to The Unapologetic Show, where we make a case for why Christianity still makes sense in a world of doubt. With almost apostate and now pastor and apologist, Dr. Bobby Conway, I'm your host, Tim Hall. We are continuing our series called Beliefism by we are looking at different worldviews and belief systems. And if you, the audience, has a worldview that you would like us to tackle, please let us know in the comments of this video. Bobby, this episode was kind of spawned off of an experience and an interaction that you had in Starbucks that just left you and Heather, uh, you know, kind of thinking a little bit. So talk to us about that interaction and, and what happened there. Yeah, a few weeks ago, we were on a date night, and we went over to Barnes & Noble. We like to walk around and peruse the books, and we went to the Starbucks coffee shop that is inside of Barnes & Noble. And I went up, and I ordered my drink, and I noticed that the barista had they, them on their uh, on the name badge. I was like, there, them, his, <laughs> yeah. right, all this pronoun stuff gets so confusing for all of us, I think. Uh, but they, them, uh, that's how this person described herself. Right. Clearly a female, right? Right. And uh, when she took my order, she basically handed, uh, you know, me the receipt and said, I'll have your order right up, sir. And I found that interesting, first off, because she had no problem calling me a sir uh, and why is that? Well, she, you know, was saying what basically made sense to her that I was a male. Uh, but why did she assume that on me? I thought to myself, uh, then I found myself thinking, well, we know what to say to a him or a her, uh, to refer to them as a mister or a missus or a sir or a ma'am. But I was curious. So I asked they, them, uh, what does somebody say to they or them uh, when uh, you're trying to relate to them as an adult? Like, you just called me sir. Uh, and so she began to unpack for me different terms that can be used. Like, some people say uh, MX, uh, or some people say just M, like it's written out like M dot, or some people would say miss, like miscellaneous, M-I-S-C. And I was listening to her whole conversation. She said that she's been struggling uh, with this for about 10 years. So when she was in junior high, and as I listened to her, uh, I really appreciated the conversation uh, that we got into. It was really friendly in nature. But Heather and I left that time thinking, what has become of our world? Mm. I mean, how did we get to this place of butchering the English language, deconstructing it in the way that we have? 
And this is what we're seeing take place across the spectrum of the United States, be it statues and gender or constitutions or the family uh, terms and definitions are being deconstructed. And this is influence from the postmodern culture that found its roots basically in some French thinkers in France in the 20th century. Yeah. So again, this is uh, prevailing in our culture, but a lot of times people don't even know what kind of the the rock bottom, what the foundation is. So talk to us a little bit about why it's important, especially for those of us in the church to understand the postmodern mindset. It's incredibly important because it's there amongst a lot of people. So when you think about young activists, perhaps even the barista that I engaged, who seemed to be really bold about the fact that she was a they, them, Hmm. passionate about it. Well, a lot of these young activists don't realize the philosophy driving their activism. Uh, They just assume their philosophy is correct, but their philosophy uh, that is often influencing some of the youth in particular is postmodern in nature. Now, there's lots of problems with postmodern, and we'll talk about that like it's not a truly livable worldview as we're seeing. But just because it's not livable doesn't mean it's not talked about Mm. or even believed by some that it's possible. And so this mindset has infiltrated its way into the church in a powerful way. And no longer uh, does America look the way that it once did. So when we think about what's happening in our culture, this cosmic earthquake, this revolution of ideas that's taking place right now, Uh, We are in the midst of an earthquake of seismic proportions that the shaking is the result of a philosophy known as postmodernism and the various facets of postmodernism. Its tentacles have have swept across the Atlantic from uh, the French universities and attached itself to our culture. And it has shown up on our universities. It has shown up in Hollywood. It has shown up in our politics. Uh, it, 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 it has shown up everywhere. And therefore, things are changing. And the church no longer shares the values uh, with the culture, or I should say the culture no longer shares the values of the church. It's adopting new values. And it might not even realize what's influencing it to adopt these values, but it's adopting them. And people in the church are confused, and we need to help them to think like missionaries so they know what's going on. Yeah, excellent. Well, I, I do want you to, in just a second, kind of describe these three categories, you know, pre-modern, modern, and, and post-modern eras. But before we do that, I just want to remind our audience that if you are doubting your Christian faith or you know someone that's doubting your Christian faith, you are in the right place. If you want to check out this episode or any one of the other 100 unapologetic episodes or the other 1,400 videos that we have on our YouTube channel, we would invite you to head on over to youtube.com slash one minute apologist and subscribe, like this video 
video, share it with your network, share it with someone that might be doubting on one of the subjects that we've covered. As I said, we're in this beliefism series. We've covered several different um, belief systems thus far. You can also catch this as an audio-only podcast on our website or on your favorite podcast player. So, Bobby, let's first help our audience by situating the discussion. Briefly explain the differences between those three categories, the pre-modern, modern, and the post-modern eras. Well, postmodern era would be kind of the time we're living in now. Um, but let's just kind of go back like to the pre-modern era. Obviously, um, you know, that's going to precede the modern era of the 17th and 18th century, um, you know, or, six, or, or excuse me, even before that, you know, your 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th century and 17th and 18th century. Uh, but modernism really begins to take uh, a hold. But basically, some people will say you got the pre-modern era from about the fourth century to the 14th century. Now, obviously, before the fourth century, you're still pre-modern, but pre-modern in the sense that you're tracking from Augustine to Aquinas, uh, who lives, uh, you know, in the 1300s. So what ends up happening is, is uh, you see the thought in the pre-modern era, which is going to be a belief in the supernatural, a belief in God, uh, the church is going to kind of be in, uh, you know, front the front row at this stage. Uh, then you get to the modern era, and people start questioning things uh, about, you know, are miracles possible and things like that. Humanism, the Renaissance period, period, and in the 17th, 18th century, Enlightenment period. Uh, really became a time of challenging uh, the pre-modern era. And that became very problematic uh, for uh, a number of reasons. But basically, Descartes, Rene Descartes is considered uh, the father of modern philosophy. Uh, and Descartes uh, went on a, his own deconstruction project. You can call him maybe the original deconstructionist, right? And he sought to deconstruct everything that he knew uh, in order to figure out what is true. And in that process of deconstructing, uh, he came to the one thing that he knew that he could not deny, and that is that he was a thinker. And in order to think, he had to exist. So that's where you get his cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So that becomes kind of the statement, kind of really kicking off, the age of enlightenment where I think, right, it's rationalism. And so rationalism is, is going to be an emphasis where through our mind, we're going we're gonna to rationalize everything. We're going to understand our existence. We're going to understand the sciences. We're going to understand medicine. Humanism is going to be elevated. And that became the, the be all end all. But then uh, you fast forward to the father of postmodern philosophy, and you got Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche uh, deconstructs a lot of the things that the rationalists tried to construct. Right. And he basically uh, would go on and become the father figure to a lot of the later postmodern thinkers. Uh, postmodernism as a philosophy wasn't thought out like it is today, yeah. but he's kind of the initiator of it all. And for Nietzsche uh, and for postmodernism, though the statement isn't said, if the, 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 the statement, I think, therefore I am, becomes kind of 
the the champion statement of the age of enlightenment and modernism, I feel therefore I am, is kind of the the motto of postmodernism. So you're authentic when you live according to your feeling. I feel like a woman, even though I'm a man. Well, then that's what you are. And you can see that influence in our culture. Yeah, definitely. And and I mean, I've had people that I've engaged with that would even deny, uh, you know, Descartes' you know, I think therefore I am. They would say, well, I can't be certain that I actually exist. And it's a really strange interaction to have with people that are, you know, on that much of a skeptic. So talk yeah. to us a little bit. You, you had mentioned, uh, you know, Nietzsche. We mentioned um, we mentioned Descartes. Talk to us a little bit about how Immanuel Kant plays into this, one of uh, someone that you've studied a lot. How does, how does Kant kind of get the ball rolling, unbeknownst to him, uh, with this whole postmodern deal? Well, Kant's living um, during... Uh, this modern era, and he sees these rationalists, you know, all around, uh, you know, really putting such an emphasis on the mind. And there's some things that couldn't make sense to the rationalists, like miracles. You have David Hume, who's a total skeptic, and, you know, he comes against miracles. Uh, But you've got these rationalists, right? Uh, Hume's an empiricist, uh, by the way, but you've got these rationalists that are literally uh, kind of growing in their resistance against the church. Now, Kant uh, is a believer. He's a Christian. And he is struggling because he's looking, he goes, man, if if the rationalists keep doing what they're doing, um, they're going to make arguments that are going to be so strong that it's going to destroy the church. Hmm. So Kant basically offers his set of thinking, and he talks about these two different realms, the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. The noumenal realm, uh, he says, we don't have access to. The noumenal realm is the realm uh, where you would encounter a thing in itself, the real objective world uh, that we cannot know in it and of itself. What he said is we know the phenomenal world, uh, the world as it is represented to us, the world as it appears to us. And so he used his reason, obviously. So that's why sometimes he considered a rationalist. Well, he he rationalizes n- not about the noumenal realm, the realm uh, where, you know, something is in and of itself. We can't access that, but he ra- access that. He rationalizes about the phenomenal realm. And so in doing so, he feels as though he has safeguarded um, Christianity against uh, the, the basic, the rationalists of his day. Mm. In other words, these rationalists who so thought they could rationalize about uh, the objective world, the noumenal realm, the, the world as it is, he cuts it off from them by saying, they can't access the noumenal realm. They can't know uh, the objective world in and of itself. And so now all is fair game. So they can go ahead and do what they do, but it's about the phenomenal realm. And if that's the case, then guess what? Believers are free to believe as well because uh, uh, they can't you know, rationally disprove that God exists. Uh, through reason. So he meant this from a good motive, but then later what would happen is is people would pick up that 
subjectivity, so to speak, that you, the subject can't in, encounter the objective world. And then they, others would take it f- farther, uh, like George Barclay, mm. uh, uh, you know, Arthur Schopenhauer, Frederick Nietzsche, uh, you know, Wittgenstein. Uh, you would have these different philosophers who would take uh, this kind of thinking and deconstruct it. And this would become really hard because now can you even access the objective world? Can you even know a thing in itself? Yeah. So, so postmodernism uh, as a philosophy, as kind of uh, just a general way to look at the world, uh, really infects all areas. It infects art, it infects politics and economics and, uh, you know, religion and, and understanding, um, you know, how we interact with the world. So you've, you've mentioned philosophers like Nietzsche, and we talked about Foucault and Derrida a little bit, there's kind of some of this, this French influence. Maybe uh, try to wrap up as best you can. Again, this is very difficult because it's kind of a moving target. Some of the, you know, kind of core tenets or beliefs of postmodernism as you see it. So basically, it's a reaction to modernism. Hmm. So it's a deconstructing um, methodology. So as you know, Nietzsche felt like you had the you know religious class, and the reason that you had the priests is it was their way to control society. So morals was the way you controlled the herd, and so you know we need to cast that off, and we need to have a will to power, and we need to you know, discover our own purpose and shape our own destiny, so to speak. And then you, you would have people like uh, Foucault and, and Derrida, and Derrida would start deconstructing language and say, you can never know what an interpretation really is. Uh, it is whatever you want it to be. And so this whole deconstruction idea becomes important. But what they start doing is they is the postmodernists uh, have attached their their philosophical system you know you can't know truth morals are relative but they've attached their system to cultural marxism and in marxism you had the bourgeoisie and the proletariat so you had the oppressed and the oppressors and marx and engels in their communist manifesto ultimately believed that the working class would overthrow the capitalists Well, they've taken that same interpretive grid and they've applied it throughout all kinds of different fields of study. Uh, And now you've got critical theory, like critical race theory, where people are looking for what? We're oppressors and the oppressed, and they're seeking to overthrow it all. So some of the characteristics of the postmodern mindset is this, and I write, is they are anti-rationalists, anti-realists, anti-objectivity, anti-universals, anti-modernity, anti-power structures, anti-power structures, except their own, of course, anti-individual, anti-capitalism, moral relativists, and absolutely committed to obliterating any vestiges of reason left over from the Age of Enlightenment that dominated the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe. With the rhetorical savvy of the ancient Greek sophists, these cultural warriors have drunk from the fountain of Machiavelli and will say whatever or do whatever it takes to eliminate and erect their new world order. The message is clear. Comply or be canceled. And this 
is basically postmodernism today. Interestingly enough, they say that, you know, there is no such thing as objective truth, but boy, don't they seem absolute in their truth that they hold to, to overthrow anything that rings of oppression in order to reign in their power seats with their worldview of postmodern deconstructionism. Yeah, I think that's excellent. So uh, again, that's that a, a brief summary. We've done episodes on critical race theory. We expand some of this a little bit more. But but I want to pick up on something you said there where you talked about the idea of kind of the, the bourgeoisie and uh, the proletariat and that, that has kind of transferred itself into kind of the oppressed and, and the oppressor class. Uh, and, I, and I see this coming at the church a lot. Those of us that are Christians, you know, we have this objective moral view of reality and people are coming to us and saying things like, well, you don't want to be an oppressor, do you? And, you know, again, the answer from us would be like, well, no, we don't, we don't want oppression. We don't want people to be oppressed. And then, so there, so then the next step is, well, then you have to adopt this kind of worldview of being a, a not oppressor, or you don't want to be racist. You have to be an anti-racist. And so we're looking at, um, you know, kind of other modern thinkers. So in our few remaining minutes here, Bobby, give us uh, just how the church can maybe reach those with this sort of postmodern mindset. I think it's important that the church does not stay silent, first off. Uh, you know, the language we're spiraling into silence has been used before. Uh, we are living in, in a very challenging time, and we need to speak up. Everybody's out of the closet except the church, and so we need to speak up. But the culture has been very strategic in its ways to keep us silent. So, you know, you don't want to be a Christian nationalist, do you? Well, uh, why do they say that? Uh, because uh, they want the power. And if you, if you vote your values, uh, guess what? They're not going to have their voice. So you get accused of what? Being a Christian nationalist just because you want to vote your values. Can there be such a thing as Christian nationalism? Sure. Uh, in, in an unhealthy way? Sure. But there's nothing wrong with caring about your nation, as a Christian and voting your values. Uh, but they'll, they'll do that to you. They'll love shame you. Like uh, you either agree with the LGBTQ mo movement or you don't love them. And so they'll use love against you. Uh, and we need to be aware of how the evil one is working. So we're getting silenced by becoming Christian national. So we don't vote. We're being silenced by being love shamed because we, we don't agree with the homosexual movement. So we end up agreeing with them to show them that we love them. And these are mistakes that we ought not make. We need to hold fast to the word of God and be faithful. And so it's important as we engage the culture that we're living in, that we speak up, that we let our voice be heard. And if we're going to reach people in this postmodern mindset, we need to start with the consequences. You go out and talk to people about their sin. They don't even think they're sinning. The government's legalized these things that the church calls sin, they're going to say, what's sin? But then we need to ask them, okay, if all of these things that were once called sin, right, are, are now goods, like, you know, living out however you want to live, drugs, you know, debauchery, immorality, sex change, you know, sexual immorality, ask, how's that working for you? 
And what you'll find is there's consequences to their lifestyle. And so work backwards from the consequences to show them that these can't be goods because they're creating consequences. You've been fed a wrong worldview and it's creating consequences in your life. Mind if I share the truth with you? That's what I would say. Yeah, that, that, that's an excellent point. And again, we are just scratching the surface on some of these things. So if there is a particular point that you want us to dive deeper on in a future episode, uh, please let us know in the comments under this video on our YouTube channel. And again, we could talk a ton about this, but Bobby, any final thoughts or, or closing words you want to leave our audience with? Uh, no, I just uh, really hope that people will keep their eyes open and be aware and learn what's going on today. Yeah. Ex excellent words. Uh, again, uh, I'll just reiterate, there is a lot here and we uh, aren't able to kind of go into the depth that we would love in a single episode, but that's why we have over a hundred episodes of The Unapologetic Show. And we'll continue to uh, bring you these truths and make the case for Christianity to a doubting world. So with that, we will meet you next time on The Unapologetic Show. You've been listening to Unapologetic with Dr. Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist. I am your host, Tim Hall. Be sure to listen to Bobby on Pastor's Perspective Monday through Thursday, as well as like, share, and subscribe to the One Minute Apologist YouTube channel, where we have over 1,000 videos. We would also like to remind you that this is a listener-supported program. We would greatly appreciate your support in any amount so we could continue to provide this ministry. If you would like to be a part of our team in any capacity, please visit our website at oneminuteapologist.com. And while you're there, check out all of Bobby's books, courses, and even invite him to speak at your church or event. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, where we defend truth without compromise. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa.